Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. thinking about it the other day and uh, I know there's a little bit of emotion that gets driven by financial advisors when you think of that uh, advertisement on uh, TV with the little escalators and from little things big things grow and we don't pay commission to financial advisors and clearly XY Advisor is is focused on on advice and look I'm not necessarily an advocate of uh, people clipping the ticket along the way without doing the work Uh, but uh, I, I know that that ad in particular has definitely struck a chord with the industry. Um, but as I was thinking a little bit deeper about this, I was like, okay, well, industry funds, yeah, all well and good. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're four members and all that sort of stuff. They're affiliated more often than not with an industry, which is fine. Uh, but actually, there's a lot of people in those funds that need financial advice. And those industry funds have financial advisors. So it was always just sort of an interesting thing that they were, they were talking, it was almost anti-advisor sentiment, not, not that it was anti-advisor, but certainly uh, the, the feeling, and I'm, I'm sure advisors listening to this, would, would that would resonate or, or perhaps agree with that. Uh, but actually, I think about it, and, and on the other side of the trenches, these advisors are there, and uh, to that end, I've invited Joel Hardy, who uh, we're currently working together. Uh, Joel spent a number of years in the industry fund land, so I thought, who better than Joel to talk through his experiences? So with that, Joel, thanks for coming, mate. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having me. First things first, we're recording this down at XY Advisor in Circular Key, and uh, you were working across the way, and you were talking about the the guys in the building and in the lobby, so tell us a bit about that. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. I I used to work across the road here in the Gateway Building uh, at Circular Key, for anyone who's familiar with it, and um, one of the things I noticed the first time I ever walked in there was the was the amount of guys walking around in very sharp blue suits with a white shirt, and all of them seemed to be six foot five tall. So I said to myself at the time, what do all these people do, right? And it turns out a lot of them uh, worked in, in investment banks and certainly a world I had never been uh, exposed to or familiar with. And yeah, as Ray sort of alluded to, spending a lot of time in uh, in the profit for member space and also what you would call the industry fund land as well. But I'm interested in, because uh, there were a few celebrities in the lobby, right, that you would sort of grab yeah. a coffee with in the morning? Yeah, well, no, not, not necessarily grab a coffee with. I, I, I think I, think I would Grab a like, coffee next to? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think I would like to in my own mind. But yeah. uh, Malcolm Turnbull was one, Paul Keating was another, David Murray. Uh, a lot of people wearing the little gong on the lapel. So <laughs> one could only, one could only uh, yeah. read, uh, read into that, but... Um, so what, what was that like? Because I, I sort of think of like, you know, if you travel first class, you're, you're in a lounge and everyone speaks in hushed tones mm. because it's all very private and con- confidential information. So mm. if you're in a lobby with these fellas mm. or, and ladies, uh, what, what's it like? Do you, did, you, did you ever overhear anything? Not that I need you to, to share what it was, but yeah. it's kind of an interesting dynamic, right? It is an interesting dynamic. It's certainly a world away from where a lot of, <laughs> um, a, what a lot of people are familiar with. I yeah. Think. And, you know, the, the part of town, obviously... That, that, that I was working in at the time, I think that the sort of companies that were represented in this, in this, I would call it an ivory tower in a way, but, <laughs> yeah. but um, you know, once, once you sort of got used to it, you got used to it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, how much were the coffees? 
same prices same as, as they are uptown, mate. Four dollars fifty. Four dollars. Four dollars fifty. Yeah, I had a I had a really good um, cafe out in the way that um, uh, friendly staff there. So I do uh, see Johnny Howard and his his eyebrows walking around town quite a bit. It's kind of cool. Yeah. So tell me, mate. Like, uh, obviously, I, I did did a little bit of an intro there, but. Working in an industry fund, mm-hmm. like for me, I've, I've worked in A&P and then mm-hmm. I've worked in private advice land basically for the rest of my professional life. And industry funds have always been a, I don't know if it's like a psychological war, but it's like, I'm not one of them and they're not one of me. And you either subscribe to that side or the other. Um, but mate, what, what's it like? Is that, is that a thing? What's it like in on the other side of the trenches? I think it is a thing in a way, Ray. And what I will say is that um, as advisors, we're all in the one pool together. We all sit the phaser exam. We all are a member of the FPA. Or we might be a member of the AFA. Yeah. Uh, we came, a lot of us came up through the same sort of channels and found our way into this industry. But when, when you're actually working in a certain organization, you do start to embed that, the culture of, of that organization. I think, and I think with industry funds, you start to embed a method of thinking in a lot of ways. And I noticed, I noticed it now that I've worked for for Pivot and with you in a much smaller business, one that deals with clients who are um, of a younger demographic, work in the tech sector largely. It's a very, 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 very different environment to what I was in previously. But the 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 thing I noticed most was that you know ultimately ultimately these organisations have huge membership bases. And a lot of these members have never seen a financial advisor. And certainly one of the things that a lot, uh, the fund I previously worked for and, and also the company before that was that um, trying to touch all of these people was very difficult from an advice perspective. But there was a real desire to educate first and foremost clients on what their options were, particularly around retirement and post-retirement, educate them on, on as to the investments that they were um, invested in and, and, and where their money was going and, and, and really tried to provide a better outcome financially for these people over time. Yeah. And, and I imagine, you know, uh, industry super, uni super is defined benefits. So it speaks to a lot of retirement stuff, but you being an advisor in an industry fund, mm. is it like, is there a, is there a, is it almost like people looking at you going, Oh, you're one of them? Or is it, am I, is, is it just, you know what I'm saying? Because they, yeah. on the on the ads, basically, if you read oh, the underlying message of the ads is that you shouldn't pay advisors commission, mm. but actually how it comes across is don't trust advisors because you don't know how they get paid. Yeah. So you being an advisor in there, yeah. is it what's 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 it like? Look, it's it's the 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 purpose of and and you know in terms of Uni Super, I can't speak specifically for the brand and what. Um, you know, the reasons why they set up the business and previous to that I worked for State Plus, which is a fairly well-known organization as What's well. What's State Plus? Is that... Is that that uh, used to be called First... Uh, uh, State, State, no, no, State Supernatural State, Services, okay. what it was once called. Okay. Um, looking after the, the state government public service employees and uni super, obviously, in the university sector. Yeah, yeah. But um, really, really the design of the model was, was to educate the membership and ensure that the financial outcomes they were receiving were were good ones, and I mm. think a lot of that, a lot of a lot of the reason why the advice function was set up in these businesses was because third party advice firms had 
largely not understood the defined benefit nature of of the fund and or what the funds were in that in that time, but also you know would really push products onto these people that didn't necessarily meet their best interests once upon a time. Now I'm talking I'm talking several years ago now, but the catalyst for setting up decent size advice businesses in a lot of these funds was. Yeah was to ensure that the members were looked after properly and protected. And it was out of a, not out of a philanthropic sort of mindset, but it's certainly out of a, a, a looking after our, our, the people who are contributing to the fund. That makes, that makes a heat, that makes a lot of sense because I know, well, Defined benefits scare the hell out of me as an advisor. My, my default is don't touch it. Like it just makes me so nervous. But I equally, on the other side of the things, like in phase, I think talk about the compliance aspect of things, not compliance, but the competency. I shouldn't be advising on a defined benefit. I don't understand it. But, and, and being a, being an industry fund, then having a bunch of advisors who aren't uh, fully educated around the nuances of a defined benefit, mm. providing advice mm. and ultimately maybe creating horrible, irreversible outcomes. Clearly, you'd want to find a solution for that. That was one of the, that was one of the the catalysts for initially setting up a lot of these in-house advice models. But I think over time, what it really started to develop into was a a, a way of educating members. And, and we always talked about members rather than clients because they were members of the fund. Mm. Um, educating members into what their options were, trying to create better financial outcomes for those for those people. Um, many of whom, you know, weren't weren't necessarily really well off. They weren't working in salubrious occupations. It was because it was almost the well, it was almost the paradox of those people I was talking about earlier in the podcast in the foyer. You know, the guys in the blue suits, six foot tall, talking about uh, <laughs> life uh, life down at the Sheaf in Double Bay on the weekend. It, it, these people, these people were your your typical uh, mum and dad sort of you know, clients and, and members of the fund who financial literacy was not um, something that they would they would be across in their everyday lives necessarily. And they really relied on they really really relied on an advisor to guide them through the headwinds or the process of, of, of particularly pre and post retirement. Were they mostly teachers? Is that what Unisuper is? Well, Unisuper, uh, they looked after people in the higher ed sector, so your universities right. and your related bodies. Uh, State Plus looked after mainly public servants in, you know, whether it be police, uh, nurses, teachers, white collar uh, public servants. So it was a slightly different mix, but but I, I, a lot there was a lot of similarities as well. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So. Um I suppose the next question would be, and, and if, if nothing else, we were able to answer this question for everyone listening, how does a defined benefit work? Yeah, right, okay. uh, good, yeah. It's an interesting one, right? Because defined benefits are, are a bit of a, a taboo topic, I find. And, and coming to pivot and sort of sitting on the other side of the fence, even now I sort of have to rack my brain as to what some of the nuances of these things were. But... Really what it is, it's a formula-driven outcome for a person at a certain age. You, you think about accumulation funds when we're talking about super and it's defined contribution and then you've the opposite to that is a defined benefit. So the person receives a set benefit based on a bunch of parameters at a certain age. 
largely things like salary play into it, uh, the rate of contribution, whether you're full-time, part-time, years of service is a big one. Mm-hmm. And I would say that a lot of, a lot of um, well, particularly the public sector, but also in, even in the higher ed sector, it was almost a, a bit of a quasi-retention policy. If, they, if, some, if these people had a defined benefit, they're almost in their job uh, to get that better retirement outcome and would probably put up with more than what you and I would <laughs> in the in, private sector. In, in, yeah, in the private sector <laughs> in order to achieve that. But yeah. but they 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 provided a hell of a lot of security. You know, and I think when you're in your when you're in your latter years of your working career, there's a there's a level of security that that is really important. Um, and if you had if you had an outcome that was guaranteed versus one that was unknown, why would you ever well, take the risk? Why would you right? ever take the risk? Yeah. And so the formula, as I understand it, is you talk salary times years of service yep. times accrual benefit. Like there's an accrued benefit ratio. It's 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 almost like well, how much does the person contribute? What's their salary? It's a multiple of that. Right. What's their years of service? There's another multiple of that. And years of service being for the for the for a specific business or working in an industry or what? look in, in the public sector you could have been a nurse and then transitioned to being a, a CEO of Treasury. Uh, that's your that's that's a tenure so that you so it's the same tenure because it's government. Yeah, because okay. it's all government. Yeah, right, okay. so um, that that all counts. But yeah, it's re- really what it's looking at is a tenure within the same organisation in inverted commas. But that could be the whole that could be the whole sector technically too. Because that and I mean, this is in the detail now, but I'm interested in. So if I've got an Ambo who's okay. saying, "Ray, I want to become a cop," mm. what does that mean for my retirement? Like for my retirement? Well, really, the only impact would be on salary. So if that if that person's salary changed substantially, that would impact the defined benefit. The contribution rate would be commensurate to what the salary was. So the years of service would continue. Okay. Okay. Um, because of government. Yep. But the but the other those other two conditions that I mentioned would, would change. So does that then mean because I, I I was thinking about this as well. I understand the contribution rate or that that me- metric. But later in life, if you've got somebody who wants to go part time, as in, mm-hmm. let's say you're on hundred grand a year mm-hmm. and you want to go down to a lower a less less days, and you decide to take a job in the same organization, meet all the other things. 60 grand a year, you're in that for the last couple of years of your professional life. Does that then create a problem for your retirement? Typically, it doesn't. And really, you've got to remember that these schemes were designed ultimately through a bargaining process with the employer and the union movement. So there was always this skewing toward what's going to be in the best interests of the member, and we talk a lot about best interests now in advice land, mm. but they were talking about that back in the 80s and the, the and the early 90s in terms of designing some of these schemes. How does that how does that protect the people who work for us, and how does that protect some of our members? Whether you're looking at from the union side, so that collective agreement is what you now see represented in some of these defined benefits. And one of the things that they try to do is prevent you being um, disadvantaged if you were to go part-time. And I think that's probably particularly important for a lot of women who would spend time out of the workforce yeah. having kids and, and, and that sort of thing and, and then going part-time um, as well. So it does affect the accrual rate, but it doesn't impact... The, typically, the full-time salary is used to work out the formula. 
Right. It's it's it, and then as I suppose it sounds like, and and one of the interesting things here is that there's no commercial agenda, right? Because give it because it's you know as a as a financial advisor in a private business, obviously we do the right thing by people, but at the end of the day, there's a commercial outcome that needs to happen for the lights to turn yeah. on. Yeah. But in an industry fund, that's not the case, right? It's not the ambition, and as you say, in the eighties they were starting to talk about a lot of this stuff because it was more of a, yeah. a social good yeah. or yeah. it was the right thing to do. Yeah, and it's amazing the, you know, when I used to really advise a lot of uh, pre-retiree clients particularly, it was amazing to see the difference that that made over the over the sort of years in which they were leading up to retirement and the sort of balances that people had. You compare that to the average Australian and they were miles ahead Part of it was because they had they had worked in this in this similar occupation and contributed at a similar rate and had fairly incremental salary rises over that time. But yeah. but a lot of it as well was was because you know prior to nineteen ninety three I think it was there was no compulsory super guarantee. But these people a lot of them were already contributing to some sort of superannuation arrangement pre that time. So they had a real um, head start. And that's made a big difference when they hit, you know, the likes of 60, 65. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just an interesting world. And so what I guess, I guess the other thing I would be then if, if you're an advisor who gets a defined benefit client, like do they, like before I get into that, do they even exist? As in, if you're a younger teacher, let's say you just uh, graduated uni, you go into, you mm. become a, an academic mm. in, a, in a university. Mm. You, you apply for your fund and you go through the, yeah. the institution one. Do you get a defined benefit? So the the answer is yes and no. Um, these things, I think what what what's probably worth mentioning is that it's very very rare in two thousand and twenty for anybody to have a defined benefit. That's the first thing. The only known open defined benefit scheme that you can join today is, in fact, uh, to my knowledge, it's Unisuper. They do still have an open defined benefit scheme. It does pay a lump sum at the end of. Um, retirement if you were to join today, for example. But I think one of the reasons that a lot of them have since closed is because of the cost and also the As fact- As in they're too generous to the member? Well, not too generous necessarily, Ray, but they're, the, the fund has to budget for this outcome that it really doesn't know what it's going to pay and how long people are going to live for. And that's really the unknown, especially yeah. especially when, when some of the earlier people were in full pension schemes. You know, things like Triple S, which is an old yeah. state, yeah, no, state I mean, government scheme. The Reserve Bank, I think. Where, Reserve Bank has one. Yeah. Um, you know, CSS is another one from the Commonwealth CSS, sorry, side yeah. of things. So how, how do these funds, how do these funds actually budget and project for that? Well, really what you need is, is an actuarial study of what the membership looks like. And what are the what are the benefits that we're going to have to pay out in the future? And you have to set that money aside and invest it now in order to cover those liabilities. How do you do that though? Because and I always say this is the things that keep us alive mm. tomorrow don't exist yet. So mm. like I don't know what my life expectancy could be. It could be one hundred and fifty. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. And a, lot, <laughs> and a lot of these a lot of these arrangements were designed when people lived a lot shorter lives. Yeah, we're now living to where you know in our early nineties, late eighties. So. The funding of it, the funding of it is is a real challenge, and that's I'd I hazard a guess, but that's one of the reasons why you don't see many open defined benefits anymore is because of that cost. So, 
graduating university, going into a university as an academic, you particip- if you participated in that fund, you're going into an accumulation fund. Well, in the case of in the case of Uni Super, they do they do still have an open defined benefit fund. Yeah. Um, which if you're a permanent employee, you can join. Yeah. Um, they also have accumulation funds, of course, like any other industry fund does, but. It's it's very rare, I would say, the big scheme of things to to come across an open one. When in in a in a conversation that we had had in preparation for this, we we're talking about defined benefits, and uh, we were talking about the fact that a defined benefit isn't necessarily an income stream for the rest of your life, but it is also a formula that creates a lump sum payment, mm. and it sounded mm. like it was a similar similar thing that an advisor would do where you work out what the SG is relative to a conservative rate of return sure, on sure, a portfolio. Sure, sure. So, and, and that it wasn't always favorable to being the defined benefit? Or? Yeah, that's true. I think depending on the nuances of the, you know, whatever scheme you're talking about, sure. it may make more sense to be in something that is market linked. Yeah. Um, especially, especially in a, in an environment where you do have fairly buoyant share markets. Now, I'm not, mm. I'm not talking about immediately at the moment with COVID and what's happening globally, but but certainly depending on your situation, um, you know, there's there's a lot there's a lot to, to, to say that perhaps it's not the best option. Yeah, I, I guess thinking super compliantly, right? Like me as a financial advisor, someone's got a defined benefit, which creates a formula to create a, a lump mm. sum. Mm. I, I I start to get nervous about yeah. the notion of even if it is better off going somewhere else, I don't know that I would, and, and it, this could just be an ignorant thing, but I, I don't know that I would ever tell someone to roll out of it just, just out of fear. I, I'd probably tell them that I, I, I am ignorant and that I'm not the right person to ask, but... It, I don't know why I, I feel nervous about the idea of telling someone to move out of that into a, an accumulation because if anything were to happen, let's say we hit a recession and then, you know, we, we experienced 20 years of yep. uh, low returns and then the client turns around and goes, well, hang on, the formula says I'm going to have 500 grand more. Yeah, yeah. 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 Is that a reality? Yeah. That's a reality, yeah. And I think, I think the trepidation of a lot of advisors is around... Well, I'm so I'm so conscious of not providing advice that's not in the best interest of clients. Therefore, I'll I'll either choose to ignore that side of things, yeah. or heed caution and and just um, go to advocate. Old Joel Hardy, the advisor in the fund. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's a solution. And, and and those guys, those guys, you know, those advisors working in these funds are good advisors. They are well-skilled, a lot of them have their, you know, qualifications and CFP and all that sort of stuff. And I worked with a lot of great people and they're, they're just as good as any advisor outside. Would they, would they, let's say I'm, a, let's say you're still at, at an industry fund mm. and I'm a private financial advisor mm. and I've got this guy coming in mm. or lady coming in and they've got an industry fund with a defined benefit and I don't know what it is. I don't know how it works. Would, would it, would it be possible or, or would, would, is it your sense that most advisors would be open to this? that me as a financial advisor, I'll agree to provide advice on everything, excluding the defined benefit, sure. but that we agree sure. to client plus Ray going into the industry funded approach and industry fund advisor, and we get scoped advice specific to that. Yeah, you certainly could. Does that, does that, 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 would be, that would be a way, that would be a way to mitigate some risk 
for you as an advisor. But also um, to get the best outcome because I don't know. Yeah, to get the best outcome for the client. And certainly, um, as we've just spoken about for the last, you know, five, ten minutes, it's there's a lot of nuances in these in these arrangements yeah. that can make or break a client outcome. And so if if you if you're talking to somebody who really knows the back to front of these of these arrangements, then yeah. at least you could you could be comfortable that the client is being looked after in every sense of the word. Yeah. And then you're comfortable as well that um, that that you're providing the best advice you can. And and but practically, I suppose, is it your sense that advisors in industry funds would be open to receiving a call from a private advisor? I mean, I think the vast majority would, and I if it was me still sitting in the chair, I would. Um, but I, I certainly think that you know we're all one cohort when it yeah. comes to being an advisor. Yeah. I don't. I really don't. I really don't think. I think that the you know there is there or there has been this rivalry between retail land and industry fund land, definitely. And you've seen. I think you've seen that. Amplified with the likes of um, the you know the issues that's happening over at places like A and P, yep. um, some of the bank scandals that were that were sort of it plays to the narrative, doesn't it, of dividing the yeah it does. And these and these and these big industry funds were already um, popular alternatives to the retail environment post or even pre, I should say, the Banking Royal Commission and all of that, but. Um, you know, they, they have, there's no doubt they would have massively benefited from some of the issues happening in retail fund land. But that's not to say that, that's not to say that there shouldn't be healthy competition and that there shouldn't be an environment where clients get to choose who they invest their superannuation with. Mm. But from, from my experience, these funds do their absolute, do the absolute best job they can at ensuring that members are looked after. Yeah. Yeah, I and I get a sense there's less of a commercial agenda as an advisor there. So, uh, really, the aim and and look, I'm I'm speaking, I'm speaking here, um, you know, in terms of not 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 referring to any any one fund particularly, but really the aim is to retain, is to retain um, members into retirement. So the demographic of industry funds is, is vastly accumulation focused. Yeah. And once they hit that 60 point, a lot of people are then looking for options as to what they do. And the advice that's provided is really in that space. It's okay, well, what do we do now with your, your funds that you're going to move into retirement? How do we provide an income stream in retirement? Sure. What does that look like? What does that look like? Can we model a scenario where it ensures that you're comfortable and Traditionally, these these places have really struggled to retain the post-retirement client and, and they've lost them to independent financial advisors, third parties, uh, to the retail space, self-managed super up until recently as yeah. well, I would say. Yeah. So, so the, 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 having an in-house advice model in a way is designed to retain those people into the retirement space and, and then provide advice on an ongoing basis potentially. I suppose one of the lovely things as well in, in the private advice space is that with Phasier and the Royal Commission, there's there's certainly a a drop in advisors who are charging through product. Sure. So so that the issue that may have existed in the early two thousands when you've got a, a client walking in who has an industry fund, that doesn't necessarily become an issue anymore because 
it's empathy. It's not yeah. really, it doesn't, it's not a driver of how you get yeah. paid. So yeah. Yeah. I wonder if the opportunity or the, or the future between industry funds and, and advisors or mm. private advice space mm. is, 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 is blue. Like, as I think it is blue, Ray. And I think that if you see, you see the relationship that, or you see the path Sun Super has gone down. Yeah. Right, as an example. I mean, they have, they have really, uh, made an effort to engage with independent financial advisors and create a model where, uh, you know, partnering them is is very easy and fairly seamless, and they have they have people there who are willing to reach out and help at every step of the advice process. But I think I think across the board, a lot of industry funds are very conscious that they have enormous membership bases that cannot be serviced by an in-house advice team, and in fact. To employ a wholly in-house advice team costs a lot of money. Would do. Um, it requires a substantial subsidy from the fund because, you know, we, we know, you and me know what it costs to run an advice business. It's very substantial. Yeah. So there has to be some sort of cross-subsidization there. A way to avoid or, or prevent a situation where, A, you can't, service everybody but b the the costs blow out to an enormous level by having all these people in house that you're directly employing Mm. is to get on board with trusted trusted and i'll say that word um third party advice providers yeah 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 Yeah, i get a sense the the climate is 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 right for that to get better or or yeah and i reckon i reckon as well you know I've sort of seen the other side of the coin now since being with Pivot, but there is, there there was a bit of a mentality, and I must say that there has always traditionally been a bit of a mentality of us versus them. And I don't think that comes from advisors specifically, but I think it comes from this idea of industry versus retail. Yeah. And that's a legacy thing. That's not something that any one particular organization has, has dreamed up. I think it's a, a bit of a legacy thing, but the the you know the adverts with I think it's John Wood he's the one standing on the escalator with the with, with the hands that's just the image everyone thinks of that's right? the image yeah. everyone thinks of and the escalator's going up and one guy's doing really really well and the yeah. other guy's doing not so well and it's like well what's really the difference here because and I've seen this recently that that there's a lot of retail funds now that are charging lower fees than most industry funds you think about some of the fees that you see on a regular basis and I won't name any funds but there are some out there that are fairly expensive. Yeah, and then you compare that to a retail option, and it's 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 hugely competitive. Yeah, now it doesn't seem to be because I mean in the early days it would it would be a this isn't a, a definitive rule, but industry funds would be a little bit cheaper. The retail fund would be a bit more expensive because the advisor yeah. would get paid along the way. But yeah. the idea was that that would subsidise the advisor and mm. create a relationship. Mm. Uh, but I, I don't. I think that's. I think those days are numbered. I think. I think now, equally, you talk about some super. So I and I don't know. Um, we actually had Brian Parker. I believe his name is the, yep. the chief investment officer. He was. He was in X Y podcast earlier. But mm. I wonder if they're starting to. I don't know if they're listening to advisors and and starting to create options that satisfy that or an Australian super is a really good example as well of another fund that's talking to advisors and creating frameworks that allow that to happen or if clients are starting to demand things because it would cheap cost index investing because advisors are starting to play more in that space I don't I don't know if there's chicken or the egg there I think it's both yeah I think it's both I think clients are more educated and perhaps savvy 
than they have traditionally been. Um, at a time where the defined benefit thing isn't a guaranteeing substance, well, it's, it's and, becoming less favourable. Yeah, people and look at this stuff more. exactly, and and really, there's there's very few people uh, left in a lot of these arrangements too. So so you know, call it ninety eight percent of but cut. I can't say the exact number because I'm not too sure, but let's say ninety eight percent of people are in an accumulation fund, mm. and you've got full choice, and you're looking for an arrangement that is not only cost effective but provides a great return. And has all the features that you're after. I think that there's a huge amount of competition out there, and clients are becoming more savvy, which is great because what that does is eventually it reduces costs for everybody. the The biggest cost, as as you're probably aware, with with any organisation, is your staffing, and then in terms of a large business that manages a lot of money, mm. fund manager fees, and where a lot of bigger funds have reduced costs is by bringing that in house. To some degree, the fund management. Yep, yep. Or or um, using index funds that are that are run by a large, you know, international. Yeah, Vanguard or a BlackRock or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What and I don't know if you're you're across this because it's it's a bit of an interesting one, but I know there are a couple of industry funds that have been dragged through the coals. Mm. Um, I think specifically of of one who were dragged through the coals in the GFC. After the global financial crisis, they they were the top performing fund, or they were one of them. But a couple of years later, they went from the top quartile to the bottom one. And the reason was that this particular fund held a large portion of unlisted assets. Sure. Yep. So as I understand, unlisted assets get valued at a different rate to listed assets, which is live. Uh, so they were pr- reporting figures based on a performance that was driven from valuations mm. on old mm. on, on old valuations. Mm. Then the asset got revalued and mm. overnight it went boom, boom, boom. So I guess my question is, I want, what I'm intrigued with is how unlisted assets work because clearly there are merit, there's merits to it. And I yep. don't know if you, you, like you're across this, but yep. it, it just strikes me as an interesting asset class that I don't understand. I think there's a few... If you're talking and if you're talking about industry funds, there's probably there's probably a conversation there in itself. But one of the one of the attract one of the attractive points of unlisted assets is typically a long term yield. So let's say you go out and buy an office building now. Yeah. Pre COVID, I mean, no one could have predicted COVID, but let's let's talk in pre COVID world. Uh, you had you had potentially a, a really long yield that was going to pay you X amount of percentage per year, you know, six, seven, eight percent a year. Yeah, like an office building in Sydney. Yeah, like right. Tower. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you buy a toll road, you buy an airport yep. for a dollar proportion of it. You, 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 can, you can really factor in what those cash flows are going to look like over a long With a high level of confidence, which would be with a high level of confidence. Beneficial yeah. if you're paying yeah. out a defined benefit. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot, a lot of, a lot of, <laughs> Interestingly, a lot of the dilemma that industry funds have is the enormous amount of money that is being rolled in, contributed every single week. We're talking billions and billions of dollars that has to be invested somewhere. Now, the Australian share market's only so big. Yeah. Okay. In fact, total super assets exceed the Australian share market now by about a trillion dollars. Is that right? Yeah, you're looking at about, I think the Australian share market's worth 1.7 trillion. The the amount in super is approaching two point eight trillion, or it did at least pre COVID. So you're talking about an enormous amount of money now. The international markets would be an obvious choice for that, sure. but there's a lot of, uh, you know, I think I think understanding and expertise in a lot of these spaces is it can be it can be there's there's a, there's a bit to be left desired for. So 
direct assets provide a, a, a much much more consistent yield over time than they always traditionally have. Mm. And I think there's an element as well of not philanthropy, but investing in things that the support the industry support you're in. the industry you're in. Yeah. yeah. So whether it be rest and hospitals, yeah, well, well, sorry, um, well Hester, and Hester, hospitals. Hester and hospitals, you yeah. know, and um, First State Super is another example. They they own, they own a portion of the light rail. You know, a lot of their a lot of their people would either help build it or operate it. It's um, I'm sure I'm sure you know for, for Uni Super there'd be there'd be investments that they would have gone into, which which is designed to a provide jobs for the for membership, but also lead to a better outcome for members over time. I think that there is that element of it. Obviously, first and foremost, and and it's written in the CIS Act that you need to try and achieve the best possible return that you can. Um, for for the clientele, and that's that's obviously the overarching goal. Yeah. But then there's there's probably a, a a couple of things that sit below that which would make those decisions. I read an article. This was a few years ago, so don't quote me on the detail. But effectively, I think it was Canada, and Canada. I could be miles off here, but I think Canada have not a voluntary pension system, but actually a, a compulsory one. So it's like a compulsory. Super fun thing, uh, and then in retirement, it, it work, it's almost like a similar defined benefit structure. Mm, mm. And what this article was talking about is they say, Well, hang on, the Canadian, whoever owns that pension fund, they know exactly the demographic, they know the age, they know the average income, and they know at, like the average age of retirement and how far away that will be. So they have a level of confidence, well, they have yeah. a level of certainty yeah. over yeah. when the drawings will happen and mm. at what rate. Traditional retail funds, liquidity is key yep. because you, you never know. You could have 100% redemption on any day, right? But in an industry fund, or not an industry fund, but in, in, in this Canadian pension fund, which I'm, I'm sort of thinking could sort of be quite similar to the industry fund, you have a level of confidence where you actually don't need liquidity because people can't get their money back in the same way yeah. as a traditional fund. Yeah, and yeah. that opens up doors to less traditional asset classes. So as an advisor, I think about a particular client or any specific client, my focus is that that client in and of themselves and liquidity is, is really important. However, if I'm an advisor in an industry fund and I I know that the fund is doing the, um, the calculations behind the scenes on the redemption rates and they're managing the liquidity of which we can have a high level of confidence behind that, then, then maybe it's okay that the the unlisted asset property gets revalued in, yes. in three years' time because, and considerably, because we never the, the intention was never to sell it. Well, I think I think part of that is typically a younger. Well, I'll say this in two phrases. The first is if you're talking about defined benefits, there's you have to provide from an actuarial perspective. You've got to look at what your membership demographic looks like and provide an adequate amount of money to pay out all liabilities. That's the first thing. That aside, if you're talking about But it's never going to be hundred percent. That's what I'm well, saying. Yeah. Well it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to get it to hundred percent. Well but in a defined benefits scheme, if you're the fund manager of a defined benefit, is there, there couldn't be a situation where hundred percent of the members are going to withdraw hundred percent of the funds on a given day. Yeah, but a lot tried to budget for that. So a, a lot of a lot of the bigger funds will try and budget for an event that happens, a cataclysmic event that happens where they need to pay out the entirety of the DB. At, at on one day, really? yeah, and that and that and there are some that are fully funded. There are others that aren't. But what I will say yeah. is that if you, if you put if you cast that aside and you look at unlisted assets and say, well, what's the advantage of them? 
a lot of the, you know, you think of Aussie Super and Host Plus, particularly Rest is another one. They've got very young member demographics, very young. Um, in industries that are fairly transient, there's a lot of things there that says, well, these guys aren't going to access this money for, for several years, if not decades. And, and therefore having, having an, having a large unlisted asset actually makes sense because you know what the outcome is going to be over over a fairly long period of time, and the valuation of that asset should always go up. The exception to that rule, of course, is when you've got a situation as is, as is the case at the moment, where yeah. government says, "Well, you can access ten grand before July, and then you can access ten grand after July." And particular funds uh, who have the demographic that really has been impacted by COVID, yeah, has has um, really taken advantage of that, and you know. Pulled out a lot of money, and that and that brings into question that liquidity yeah. point that you made before. You would really like to think there was consultation between the government and industry funds of these. <sighs> well, of well, these yeah, assets, and right? and whether whether it's industry or retail, I think that there probably was not a lot of consultation. My my, my guess is that the treasury said, "Well, uh, this is a way to soften the fiscal blow. We need to act. We need we need yeah, something. What's yeah. a, what's a way? What's a way to take the pressure off the fiscal?" response that we need to make. and I think the government's fiscal response has been pr- pretty good thus far but how you know how can we take the burden off the taxpayer and put it back on something else yeah. and one of the solutions was to access this 2.8 trillion dollars worth of wealth that's built up in a yeah. system or a structure or, or you know a superannuation is is a tax structure at the end of the day but the investments that are held within it yeah yeah well, we're we're on the other side of the financial year now, so I can only imagine the the thick of the second batch of that ten grand will be coming through shortly. So. Yeah, well, I read I read as of yesterday, I think it was in the Fin Review, it was three hundred and twenty five thousand people have gone again, wow. or either not not necessarily gone again, but but tried to access up to ten grand in the new financial in year. the new financial year. So it's been just as swift as the the, the last, but. Uh, I think, mate, there's no doubt that people out there are really, really struggling financially. And it is a pot of money that a lot of younger people, I mean, you know, I'm 32, you're 30, you're 30, 31, 31, right? Yeah. So a lot of younger people don't see this as being their real money, real real, real money or real asset for, for, for several decades. So why not get it now? Not necessarily spend it, but, but. Yeah. pay down debt or, or do something other, other do than something. that. Yeah, I've got a couple of mates who have... Like, I, I, I make this thing where I don't want to talk to my mates about financial advice. If ever they if ever they uh, they ask me for advice, I refer them to, to you. <laughs> uh, but I have had a couple say to me, yeah, Ray, I've done this. I've, I've taken the, the, the it out and, and used the system mm. to my advantage. But mm. I, I, to be fair to them, they've, they've paid off credit cards and it yeah. sounds like they're doing a lot of good things. But what an interesting time to be a fund manager right interesting time to be a fund manager and and i think not only are you having the balance liquidity as you mentioned and yeah and obviously provide enough money in cash to fund a lot of the withdrawals that are that are occurring at a time when the assets are lower than at a time when the assets are lower and at a time when when a lot of the unlisted assets as you mentioned before is have been devalued but i think i think as well um the impact on people is going to be fairly profound. I mean, you and me did the calculation the other day, and, and in the, if you take out twenty grand now, and you're our age, you know, you're looking at something in the order of two hundred and twenty, two hundred and thirty thousand dollars at sixty or sixty-five. Yeah. So, so it has a profound impact, you know. And 
that's and that's what a lot of people don't consider. But at the same time, if you're under substantial economic pressure and you've lost your job, or there's there's other things that have happened, well, then you, you it is something that you'll 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 see as an attractive option. Definitely difficult to be too hard I think on people who don't take a rational view on things at a time where there's a pandemic it's like yeah uh, and no one no one could have predicted this Ray I don't think it's, it's <laughs> yeah uh, Bill Gates apparently it's did he okay well Bill, Bill, Bill's smarter than you and me no doubt yeah. so yeah yeah I can believe that one believe yeah uh, but with that Jolly um, really appreciate the time this afternoon uh for, for those listening, we're, we're at the back end of Friday afternoon and it's been a long old week, so I appreciate it. For those that are keen to have a chat or a chinwag with you, uh, how do you Well, mate, approach? there's many ways. It depends if you want to have a chinwag in a professional sense or a social sense. Uh, in, a, <laughs> in a professional sense... Um, LinkedIn? LinkedIn, yeah, absolutely. Um, come, come and visit me at 64 York Street, level 12. You can find me there most days. Uh, otherwise, Hotel CBD <laughs> across the road, up on York Street there, or the Occidental. Many, many listening would know that well. So, um, yeah, love, love to catch up anytime. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ray. Yeah.